As we consider the promises which Christ uttered from the cross, it is important to note that God's promises to his people may emphasize either the sovereignty of God in fulfilling those promises. Promises that would emphasize the sovereignty of God in fulfilling the promises would be promises like we find in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, where it says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. You see, promises that emphasize the sovereignty of God very often are phrased in this way. I will, God says, I shall do this. <clears throat> they emphasize what God will do in accordance with his own sovereign will. Or God's promises may also emphasize the means by which the promises will be realized. As in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth, there is, a, there is what appears to be a means there, the means of faith that is, that is stated in leading to that particular promise that God makes. And so all such promises as these emphasize the ordinary way which God has ordained to see his promises realized in a person's life. So, again, there are those promises that emphasize the sovereignty of God. There are those promises that emphasize the means by which God brings his promises to his people. And even when we find the stated means attached to a promise of God as we do in John 3.16 where faith is stated as a means to having everlasting life. Let us be clear that these means are not conditions or qualifications on our part which we offer to God as a work of merit for which God then gives us what is promised. The only merit, and hear me clearly, the only merit in the promises of God is the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot earn or deserve even one of the promises of God by our faith, by our repentance, or by our obedience. All of the promises of God in the covenant of grace, dear ones, have been earned for God's elect by and only by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why it is said in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Christ, are yea, and in him, amen. Why are all the promises of God in Christ yes to us? Why are they all true for us? Because it doesn't depend upon our obedience and our merit. It depends upon the obedience and merit of Christ. Thus, even when a promise seems to be conditioned upon our faith as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the promise, and thou shalt be saved. Believe and thou shalt be saved in Acts 16.31. Or seems to be conditioned Upon our obedience, as the promise is found in Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. <clears throat> Even in these cases, our faith in Christ and our delight in the Lord are not in any way, a, uh, uh, in any sense, conditioned upon our merit but rather a means, and this is very important, 
That's why I say they're not a condition. They're a means. But rather a means which Christ earned for us and which the Spirit of God sovereignly applies to us in his appointed time. And not only, not only are the promises themselves obtained for us by the merit and obedience of Christ, but even the graces like faith and repentance and obedience, these also have been entirely purchased and secured for all of God's elect in the work of Jesus Christ. Thus, no promise of God to his elect in the covenant of grace is conditioned upon the performance of man. But rather, every single promise is conditioned upon our mediator and his perfect obedience. Now, both of the promises which Christ uttered in the first three hours from the cross emphasized the sovereignty of God in bringing them to pass rather than emphasizing the means by which the promise is brought to pass. Because, we, for example, the first promise was, you'll remember from last Lord's Day, in the prayer of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. Now, Christ did not pray, Father, forgive them if they believe and repent, for they know not what they do. That certainly could have been written that way and prayed that way. But you see, the Lord is emphasizing his sovereignty in forgiving rather than emphasizing the means that it is God who pardons. And it doesn't ultimately depend upon man, but ultimately upon God. Although faith and repentance are the ordinary means, without which there will be no forgiveness, Christ specifically omits faith and repentance in this case in order to emphasize that the promise of forgiveness and all of the means that bring about its fulfillment are God's divine work alone in saving undeserving sinners. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone deserve glory and praise in pardoning the sins of criminals like you and me who deserve his eternal condemnation. But we also see in the promise that God or Christ makes from the cross today the same Sovereignty emphasized. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, Jesus uttered from the cross. Again, the Lord did not promise the thief on the cross. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise if thou believe and repent of thy sin. You see, the emphasis falls upon God's sovereignty, not upon the means. It falls upon his faithfulness to usher people into heaven, not upon our faithfulness or even upon the means, but upon his sovereignty. Let us, dear ones, rejoice today that the promises of God to all of us who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone are not ultimately dependent upon you or upon me but rather upon our covenant keeper, Jesus Christ. Let us consider today the second promise uttered by Christ from the cross, the promise of life. Last week we looked at the promise of forgiveness. Today, the promise of life. And again, listen to the words as they're recorded in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, 
Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. <laughs> By way of review, When we considered the promise of forgiveness uttered by Christ from the cross last week, we saw that in that prayer of the Lord Jesus, that he prayed for the forgiveness of those who played the most significant role in his crucifixion, Israel. He came into his own people, but his own people received him not. Not only did they not receive him by faith as their Messiah, but they also despised Christ. And they pushed and prodded Pilate who was the Roman governor, time and time again until Pilate finally consented to have Christ crucified. Because Christ's prayer for for forgiveness cannot go unanswered because he always prays according to the will of God. His prayer is an implicit promise that Israel as a nation shall, in the future, shall be forgiven her many sins against her Messiah as stated in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. Although Christ more specifically had in view Israel, let us not forget, dear ones, in a more general sense, it was our sins that put Christ upon that cross. It was the sins of his elect, those chosen from all eternity, that drove Christ to that cross to suffer that torment to die that anguishing death, to receive the full brunt of God's holy and infinite wrath for sin. And so we, in a broad sense, a general sense, sent Christ to that cross. And so, therefore, in a more general sense, Jesus was also promising the forgiveness of sins, not only to Israel, who would come to him as a nation in the future, but to all his people who would partake of that same covenant of grace, that same new covenant that would be ushered in to that covenant and forgiven all of their sins. The second utterance which the Lord proclaimed from the cross was this, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Here the Lord Jesus Christ promises to one of those wicked and undeserving criminals who was crucified with him, that he would enjoy everlasting life in paradise with Christ. Now, I don't think that we can fully appreciate the promise of Christ made to this criminal without considering the events that led up to this promise. And so let me give to you a few steps in the process that led up to Christ uttering this promise to this criminal. First, we have suggested before that it was Barabbas that was originally intended to have been crucified with these two criminals and to have hung in between these two criminals where Jesus hung. Barabbas was likely the ringleader of a national movement among the Jews in fighting for Jewish independence from Rome. And we observe as we turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 7, that there were other insurrectionists in prison with Barabbas who were guilty of the same crimes. There we read in Mark 15, 7, and there was one named Barabbas which lay bound with them. So here's more than one insurrectionist, more than just Barabbas. Barabbas was bound with them that had made insurrection with him. Then it continues, the verse continues. Who had committed murder in the insurrection? The who there is not in the singular. The who is in the plural. The verb is in the plural. And so this is referring not simply to Barabbas who had committed murder in the insurrection, but to those who were in prison with him who had also committed murder in the insurrection. And so 
It is likely that these two criminals between whom Christ was crucified were not only robbers, but had committed murder with Barabbas in resisting the rule of Rome. In other words, these men were not mere petty thieves just caught for shoplifting. These were men who were condemned criminals, condemned for crimes of murder and insurrection, very serious crimes. Furthermore, both of these criminals, earlier in the the same day, while Christ was hanging upon the cross, these same two criminals had been hurling insults at Christ along with others that were present at the crucifixion. You will recall that the chief priests and some who passed by railed at Christ come down from the cross if he were the Messiah. In Mark chapter 15, we had looked at these previously, these two verses, two or three verses, but in Mark 15, verses 30 through 32, note these words. Actually, we'll begin with verse 29. And when they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And now notice this. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. In other words, those criminals between whom Christ hung likewise hurled the same abuses and insults and blasphemies at the Lord Jesus Christ as did those who passed by. And as did the chief priests and the elders. They too vomited up their vile aspersions against their holy creator, the sinless son of God. We read in Matthew 27, verse 44. Parallel passage to the same effect. Implicating both, not just one, but both of these criminals in the abuse that was hurled toward Christ. There it says, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same, that is the same uh, reviling and insults, they cast the same in his teeth. Dear ones, there was no difference at all between these two criminals in the guilt and the condemnation they deserved for the crimes that they had committed. They both deserved death. Nor was there any difference between these two criminals in the spite and revulsion they had for the Lord Jesus Christ. They both insulted and blasphemed the Lord. However, there is a remarkable difference that occurs between these two criminals as the time moves closer and closer to the noonday hour, to 12 o'clock noon. For at some point, one of the criminals begins to evidence a work of God's miraculous and supernatural grace in his heart by the words that he directs towards the other criminal in defense of Jesus Christ. And these words we find in Luke 23. And beginning with verse 39, after the one criminal continues to rail against Christ, in verse 40, the other criminal begins to rebuke that, that first criminal. And he says, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Something has happened in this man's heart. Whereas just 
two or three hours before. He was insulting God. He was insulting Christ. Joining with everyone else and mocking Christ. Now, he is defending Christ. What has happened to this man? This criminal hanging upon the cross. Well, first, this criminal, I would suggest, no doubt saw that his own death was quickly approaching. And God uses death. God uses death as a means to show us our corruption and what we justly deserve from a holy judge. The most powerful rulers, the most wealthy billionaires, the most talented athletes, the most intelligent scholars, the most wicked criminals, the most saintly Christians, and the most influential ministers all must keep one appointment. And that appointment is death. No one can escape that appointment, no matter who they are. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men once to die. As death approaches, no doubt in this criminal's life, and as death approaches in, in many people's lives, it is not uncommon for people to consider their lives, to weigh their lives, in the light of what will occur after death. To weigh their lives with regard to eternity. With regard to God's holy judgment. Dear ones, one of the most sobering, and I would suggest edifying, exercises that we can mentally perform is to seriously meditate upon our own death. To seek to place ourselves in that position because, dear ones, it is all so very important that we know how to face death. It's so important that we know and can answer the questions concerning what will occur to us after death. Where will we spend eternity? Whether in heaven or in hell. These are not questions that we can just very lightly dismiss in our lives. For it is an appointment none of us can avoid. There are no invitations, dear ones, to come to Christ after death. When we breathe the last breath, will our confidence be in our own good works or in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Will we be filled with pride and self-righteousness as we lie dying on our deathbed? Or will we be filled with all humility and praise to Jesus Christ who bore our sin and who freely gave us everlasting life? Will we be living obstinately and continue to live obstinately in our sin into our last breath? Or will we be found repenting of sin and desiring holiness as we lay there upon that deathbed? Dear ones, we make plans for everything in life. We make plans for vacations, for school, for careers, for marriage. <clears throat> Let us not be so foolish as not to make plans for our death. I would suggest that this criminal likely began to consider and weigh very seriously the certainty of his own approaching death and what would follow afterwards. And he confessed his guilt and deserved condemnation to Christ and to this other criminal when he said, we deserve what is coming upon us. I am guilty before God and before man. I have violated God's holy commandments and I deserve this condemnation. But he not only confessed what he deserved, but he reached out to Jesus Christ who hung beside him as his only Savior. 
And there is both, dear ones, an encouragement and a warning in the approaching death of this criminal that turned to Jesus Christ. The encouragement is this. The invitation to come to Christ is present until we breathe our last breath. That's the encouragement. If a condemned criminal can come to Christ while hanging upon the cross before his approaching death and receive everlasting life, then any sinner who sincerely acknowledges that he deserves God's infinite wrath and hell for the sin he's committed against God may lay hold of Jesus Christ in his righteousness and everlasting life up until his final breath. How many have miraculously been saved by God during those final moments of life? No one knows. And that is why we cannot pronounce with absolute certainty that we know without a doubt that someone has gone to hell. What transpires between God and man in those closing moments before death may bring a person to Jesus Christ. It's true we may have no assurance that one has gone to heaven because we heard no profession of faith in Jesus Christ nor saw any evidence of faith in his or her life, but we must allow God to be God in all such matters and commit ourselves to his all-wise plan. Certainly, if a person goes to the grave apart from Jesus Christ, he will spend all eternity in hell. That is certainly true. But as to who those individuals are, we can never be absolutely sure. We must leave that with God. That's the encouragement. That there is hope, as it were, up until that last breath. But the warning, on the other hand, is this. And we must heed this as well. Don't wait until the last minute before death to receive Christ before passing into eternity. For none of us are guaranteed that we will have a last minute of consciousness before death to make such a decision. Furthermore, none of us are assured that God will at that moment as we lie dying grant us faith and repentance to look to Jesus Christ, to turn from our sin. If we have heard the truth, dear ones, concerning Christ many times and have chosen rather to ignore him and his invitations to come to him and we've chosen rather to live in our rebellion against him, we are playing with fire. We are playing with an all-consuming fire that will envelop us if we do not turn to Christ now. Dear ones, Jesus Christ can save you now and for all eternity. Don't bet your soul on the possibility of having time to repent the moment before you die. The consequences are too serious to gamble with your immortal soul. Remember only those who do come to Christ receive everlasting life. And remember only one of those criminals that hung on either side of Christ did receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The other did not. The other one perished in his sin. At least we have no evidence to the contrary. How did this criminal, dear ones, come to Christ when just previously he had blasphemed Christ? Well, first of all, as I suggested, death was quickly approaching. God used his, his death that was quickly approaching. But also, I would suggest that he had heard what had been said about Christ, that Christ was the Messiah. And that Christ had performed miracles and therefore they called Christ because of the miracles he had performed. Perform another miracle and come down from the cross and save yourself as you saved others. As you healed others, as you raised others from the dead. Save yourself if you're the Messiah, if you're the king. What this criminal on the cross had previously heard or seen concerning the ministry of Christ were not told. But even if this criminal had not heard about Christ before being hung upon the cross, he did hear the insults heard 
referral to Christ. He did hear the claims of Christ that he was the king of Israel, the Messiah. This criminal saw that no cursing fell from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was suffering as he was crucified. To the contrary, he heard Christ pray for the forgiveness of Israel. That Israel which despised him and hated him and crucified him. This criminal witnessed Christ endure all of that suffering and it impressed him that he was not suffering for his own sin for he testifies in Luke chapter 23 verse 41 but this man hath done nothing amiss. This man is not dying for his own sin. This man is dying for the sins of others. And we can safely say that since no one comes to Christ without some testimony concerning Jesus Christ, that this criminal had sufficient knowledge of Jesus Christ and who he claimed to be, and he became convinced in that short period of time by the work of God's sovereign grace in his heart and in his life, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and the Savior of sinners, and he placed his faith and trust in Christ for his eternal salvation. Dear ones, let me ask you, will your death draw people to Christ because of your testimony for the Lord, or will it say nothing about Jesus Christ? God uses even our present sufferings to draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Where we read these words. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, Paul says. Even into, unto imprisonment for the cause of Christ. Paul is saying, I suffer for Christ's cause now. But the word of God is not bound. Now notice, therefore I endure all things. That is, I endure all of these sufferings and persecutions. For the elect's sake. I endure these things for the sake of those whom God has chosen to save from all eternity, that they would see my suffering and be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, even now, dear ones, people can look upon us in the way that we suffer, physically suffer, in afflictions, in trials financially suffer in the loss of our possessions. Suffer when we lose jobs. Suffer when things do not go the way that we had prayed and hoped that they would go. Suffer for our faith by being ridiculed, mocked. People look upon our suffering. They're taking it in. And we are testifying one way or the other. We're giving testimony as to why we're suffering. But is our testimony true? Is our testimony uh, uh, faithful? Much depends upon whether your testimony is filled with self-pity and your own miseries or whether your testimony is filled with praise and thankfulness to Jesus Christ for what he has accomplished in your life. If our suffering only becomes the means by which we make known to others how miserable we are, rather than the means by which we give testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the conscience of none will be pricked by your suffering. Let me also note, dear ones, that the conversion of this criminal that hung upon the cross Beside our Savior also indicates that one does not need a great deal of knowledge concerning Christ in order to embrace him by faith. A child can embrace Jesus Christ by faith. This criminal had a childlike knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us never push our children away as if they're too young to come to Jesus Christ. Our children should be brought up in the faith of Jesus Christ, ushered into his very presence from their earliest, earliest memory and recollection 
Certainly one must know he is a guilty sinner and deserves God's condemnation, as did this man, according to his own testimony in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 41. He acknowledged he deserved condemnation. He was a sinner. Certainly one must know who Christ declared himself to be, that he declared himself to be the King, the Savior, the Messiah, as this man did, according to Luke 23, verses 35 through 38. Here is a man, dear ones, with little knowledge, but with sufficient knowledge through Jesus Christ to come and to place all of his confidence and hope in him for his righteousness and for his life forevermore. And that is why this this criminal can can plead with the Lord in Luke twenty three forty two, and he said unto Jesus, Lord. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He had sufficient knowledge. And before leaving this point, there is recorded here a very powerful testimony to this criminal's faith in Jesus Christ. And we would maybe look overlook it if we didn't look more carefully here. But he defends Christ before others. A powerful testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ. He defends the Lord Jesus Christ before others. He willingly takes upon himself the insults and reproach that Christ had received earlier. Even hurled by himself. But now he comes to the defense and vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes up the cause of Christ and says, This man is not suffering for his own sin. We are suffering for our sin. This is the Savior of mankind. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here is a man who has been changed by the supernatural grace of God and it is evidenced in his willingness to suffer criticism that's directed toward the Lord Jesus Christ and his truth. Dear ones, do we run and hide? from being accounted a Christian before others? Do we run and hide because we hold to and believe with strong conviction certain truths that are not maintained by the world nor perhaps maintained by most of the Christian world today because we believe this is what the scripture teaches? Do we run and hide rather than being willing to suffer the criticism of others? Whenever we take a stand for the truth and cause of Christ and suffer the ridicule and criticism of others, I would suggest to you, we evidence our faith in Jesus Christ and the work of God's supernatural grace in our lives, just like this man did. Are you willing to suffer the reproach of others, whether it comes from family or friends or strangers? The Lord promises that if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. In 2 Timothy 2.12 Now whatever means God used to bring this criminal to Christ, we certainly believe it was his approaching death and the testimony of Christ. God used these two means. But I want you to understand very clearly God supernaturally gives evidence of his power in this man's conversion while hanging upon the cross. He gives evidence of his power to save sinners in the most desperate situations and to grant them life everlasting. And this man's conversion was not the result of his baptism. This man's conversion was not the result of of any ordinances which he was able to keep while hanging upon the cross. Although the sacraments and the ordinances are things that God gives to us ordinarily to signify and seal his blessings, and the ordinances are means of grace in leading us to Christ to worship him and to believe in him, This man did not have access to those ordinances, and yet he was brought to Christ. And so, dear ones, God can choose to bring people to himself 
through the ordinances and through the sacraments, or he can choose to bring people to Christ apart from the ordinances and the sacraments. God is sovereign. God saves. God is the one who determines how one will be brought to himself. Look with me now for last moment here at the promise of Christ that is as it is found in Luke 23 verse 43 where it says and Jesus said unto him verily I say unto thee today shalt thou be with me in paradise the Lord assures this criminal that he himself is the faithful witness that what he says is true when he declares verily or truly I say unto thee This sinner has placed his faith in Christ as his only hope of eternal salvation and now he is guaranteed by the testimony, the truthful and faithful witness of Christ that the gates of heaven would be opened wide to welcome him into the glorious presence of God. This man did not earn or deserve the glories of heaven. He had earned and deserved the agony of hell just as all of us have earned and deserved. But his faith was not in his own goodness, nor in his own righteousness, but in the goodness and righteousness of Christ to save. And therefore Christ gives him confidence. Verily, I say unto you, I speak as the faithful and true witness. Heaven will be opened unto you. And carefully note here that Christ did not say that tomorrow or after the final judgment, this believing criminal would be with Christ in paradise. The Lord said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Those churches or false religions that teach that the soul of man sleeps in the grave until the final judgment are confuted or refuted here by the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The false religion known as Jehovah Witnesses interpret the words of Christ here to mean, Verily I say unto thee today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. How absolutely ridiculous for the Lord to say, Verily I say unto thee today. Of course he was saying it today, the the day in which he was speaking it. How absolutely unnecessary and ridiculous it is to say that the today goes with the verily I say unto you, and not with thou shalt be with me in paradise. But you see to what extremes men will go in order to uphold their false doctrines and to pervert the word of God. We even find... Other examples, such as Luke chapter 4, verse 21, where the same kind of a uh, a passage is stated, and yet we... And yet it is very clear that today does not go with the prior, but with what is said afterwards. Here, let me read for you Luke 4, 21. And he began to say unto them, this day, or it's the same word, actually, today, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? Now, did Jesus say, or is this the way the verse should read? And he began to say unto them today, and then what he said was, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears? Or did he say, and he began to say unto them, this day is this uh, scripture fulfilled in your ears? Again, it's completely unnecessary and ridiculous to take the today and apply it to what Jesus, at the time that Jesus spoke it, and not to the promise that is given. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5.8, and that was the promise that was given to this criminal. Dear ones, this is a wondrous promise to the criminal who hung beside the Lord, but it is also a glorious promise to us all as well. 
For paradise is a delightful land in the very presence of God and is called the third or the highest heaven by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 3 and 4. Paradise, dear ones, is where all pain and heartache and suffering will cease, where all sorrow and sighing will pass away, where all sin and temptation to sin will never again come knocking at our door, where all death will be swallowed up in life, where our eyes will behold our glorious Savior who suffered the infinite wrath of God for us, where we will enjoy unhindered communion with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of the people of God for all eternity, and where only holiness and pleasures forevermore shall reign. Dear ones, there are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. Every human being is either in one kingdom or the other. There are no in-between kingdoms. We are all by nature in the kingdom of Satan, as was this condemned criminal that hung upon the cross beside the Lord. We all by nature despised the Lord Jesus Christ, as did this criminal that hung beside the Lord Jesus Christ. We all by nature, dear ones, are criminals before a holy God and deserve his everlasting condemnation in hell. But Jesus Christ, by grace, has ushered in a kingdom through his death and resurrection that delivers deserving and condemned criminals from the wrath to come and into that glorious paradise in the very presence of God. The heavenly kingdom, dear ones, is not reached by those who think they are good enough to be there. To the contrary, that heavenly kingdom of Jesus Christ is only granted to those who come acknowledging that they are criminals before God, that they deserve his everlasting justice, and condemnation in hell, and who receive by faith alone Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his obedience as their own, and life everlasting as a gift from him. Beloved, no one has ever entered that kingdom of Christ who did not come to Christ as a condemned criminal in need of Christ's forgiveness and righteousness and life. Not one has ever entered heaven who did not come that way. Remember, there are two, two condemned criminals hanging upon either side of Jesus Christ, but only one of them looked to Christ for salvation. They both heard the same words as to who Christ was. They both saw the same suffering of Jesus Christ. They both needed Jesus Christ as Savior. But only one was brought to Christ. May there be no one within the sound of my voice today who turns his back or her back upon the invitation, the call of Christ to come unto him. May the promise of everlasting life be received today by all who hear it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.